Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. The following podcast contains explicit language, including the words, well, you'll just have to wait and see. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of February 13th, 2023. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Chiefs' win over the Eagles in Super Bowl 57 and the flag near the end that helped them clinch the victory. We'll also discuss Kevin Durant's move from the Nets to the Suns, ending the brief and not very glorious reign of the NBA's latest super team. And finally, the Athletics' Chantel Jennings will join us for a conversation about South Carolina and Don Staley's actually quite glorious reign in women's college basketball, marked by recent wins over UConn and LSU. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year. Stefan Fatsis, he is also in D.C. and is the author of the books Word Freak, A Few Seconds of Panic and Wild and Outside. Hello, Stefan. Hey, Josh. Welcome back. How is uh, Chelsea Fulham? Tell us. Tim Ream, American hero, saved it off the line. I was in the uh, home stand, though, and got like this long <laughs> instruction sheet. This game was at Chelsea informing me that I was not allowed to wear the visiting team colors and that if I cheered for the away team, Fulham, in this case, that I could be ejected from the stadium. So I definitely did not cheer when the Tim Ream uh, cleared it off the line for Fulham. Although I think I was in the American tourist section because there were a lot of uh, American accents. In London in general, but also at the game. But it was very fun. Thank fun. you for asking. With us from California, Joel Anderson. He is the host of Slow Burns Season 3 and Season 6. Hello, Joel. Before we recorded, I was saying that it was kind of like a college sports atmosphere that I think you would really enjoy. I'll see you at a oh. Premier League game soon. Yeah, man, I want to do it. You know, and actually some people did uh, write to me and uh, try to make you know, some sales pitches about some teams to root for. Um, I think Tottenham came up the most. I think I bought like you know, a handful. And I was like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll investigate. You know, that's all, I'm not going to make any promises. Uh, <laughs> You're going to do your yeah, own like, research? You're going to do my own research. <laughs> but I do like the idea of going and catching a game in person. Like, that's always been my dream, to catch a soccer game, whether in Brazil or Europe or, you know, Mexico, something like that. San Jose. Like, whatever. Uh, that that seems a little less <laughs> appealing, but uh, yeah, San Jose has good Mexican food, man. I just, maybe 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 I could you know do a two for her or something. I don't know. Um, and Joel, you're going to be uh, absent from the show for a little while after this for uh, work reasons that will be announced soon. But uh, mm-hmm. let's just enjoy the special times that we have together today. 
Yeah, man. I mean, you just got back and I'm on my way out. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people will, will miss me. Some might not, but uh, I'll miss you all. <laughs> This is this is the most fun. This is the most fun part of my job, believe it or not. So you'll be I'm here, gonna, but you won't be here. Is what I'll I be say. here. Maybe 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 you all will let me drop in uh, from time to time. We'll, we'll see. I'd love that. We'll talk about it. <laughs> in our Slate Plus segment today, we're going to continue our Super Bowl conversation. Go a little bit deeper on the quarterbacks, Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts. To hear that segment, you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this and other Slate shows. You get ad-free shows, and you get to support us. And who would not want to do such a thing? Slate.com slash hangup plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. Rihanna was indomitable. The field was terrible. And for the first 58 minutes, the Super Bowl was incredible. Philly quarterback Jalen Hurts steered the Eagles to a 24-14 halftime lead after his sprained ankle was twisted by a large man. Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes limped into the locker room where I picture a NASCAR pit crew of team doctors injecting him with a gallon of Toradol. Whatever they did, it worked. Mahomes engineered three straight second-half scoring drives to put the Chiefs up 35-27. Hurts responded with a 75-yard drive capped by his third touchdown plus a two-point conversion, 35-35. And then with five minutes to go, Mahomes took Kansas City 60 yards to the Philly 15 on third and eight with 154 left. He overthrew Juju Smith-Schuster in the end zone, setting up a go-ahead field goal and the possibility of a dramatic Eagles drive to win or force overtime. But the refs flagged Eagles defensive back James Bradbury for holding Smith-Schuster. Kansas City ran down the clock. Harrison Butker kicked a game-winning 27-yard chip shot with eight seconds to go. Super Bowl 57 final score, 38-35. to Josh, in the moment, this felt like an awful end to a riveting game. After the confetti cannons and Terry Bradshaw telling Andy Reid to waddle over for an interview during the trophy presentation, does it still feel that way? Or was it a great Super Bowl that included everything you'd expect from an NFL game, including lengthy debates over what constitutes a catch and a marginal call at a crucial moment? Well, it definitely feels like an awful end, but I think Alex Kirshner, our colleague, did a really good job of explaining that it can be an awful ending and not be anyone's fault. The thing that was so kind of reverse of how things usually go in these situations is that at the end of a game, the refs will typically or are typically encouraged to by some parties to swallow the whistle and not call things that were called earlier in the game because of the uh, idea that they should, quote, let them play and let the guys on the field including the guys who are holding other guys, decide the outcome of the game. But in this case, defensive holding wasn't called the entire game, in some cases uh, on plays that were much more egregious than this last one, but it was called at the end. So that was a fun uh, reversal of usual officiating complaints. But the thing that was the, the most fundamental problem here, which I didn't see anybody talking about, Joel, is that... Yes, it was a hold. James Bradier admitted it was a hold. Yes, sometimes they call holds and sometimes they don't call holds. But the problem was football is the only sport I can think of, or at least the only popular sport that we watch here in North America, where a game can be tied with like two minutes to go or whatever. And one team can basically have an insurmountable advantage in a tie game. There were still like 
a minute 50 or something to go. And the game was still tied after this penalty. And the game was effectively over. And I can't think of a rule change that would necessarily fix that. I don't think that there's anything that can uh, be done about that. But at that, it's just so weird. The game just becomes so perverse at that point. Like you have, um, you know, the spectacle of the Chiefs guy running free to the one-yard line and, like, not wanting to score. I mean, the Eagles have pioneered pushing Jalen Hurts into the end zone. I was honestly kind of surprised that they didn't try to grab him and throw him into the— and throw <laughs> Jarek McKinnon. And, and so I'm serious. Like, um, Yeah, they should have run up behind him and pushed him forward, yeah. I think I was mm-hmm. wondering why they didn't do that or if they should have done that. Uh, but the fact that our heads go there, Joel, is like an indication of how— ridiculous the scenario is that a penalty with like two minutes on the clock in a tie game could effectively turn an amazing game into an awful and disappointing one. I'm just surprised you all think it was an awful and disappointing ending. I mean, I just thought this is football. Um, And it's not like that field goal wasn't, I mean, that was a close game winning field goal at the end. Like I didn't get the impression that that was going to necessarily, I mean, it was a, it, Theoretically is a chip shot, but it wasn't necessarily for that kicker. Um, and so I didn't think that anything was necessarily, you know, foregone conclusion at that point. And I guess, you know, overall, I really hate when talk about a great game devolves into a debate over officiating. Oh, because, I hate it too. I hate it too. But because those conversations give life to the lie that a game is determined on one play. And it just so happens that that play almost always happens to be the last one. Or the close to last ones. Because we're not talking about the Dallas Goddard catch against his helmet with two minutes left in the third quarter. That didn't seem like a legal completion to me under the standards of the NFL. Like, I didn't feel like he had control of the ball before he went out of bounds. Um, the scoop and score in the third quarter that seemed like that was a touchdown. Like, the receiver made a move and the ball was knocked out of his hands and they returned for a touchdown. But they said, oh, he didn't make enough of a football move. Okay, well, I mean, I, that call could have gone either way. And then if either of those calls go against the Eagles, who knows if the game is even close at that point? So it's for the call itself. Bradbury bumps Smith-Schuster inside of five yards, which cornerbacks are allowed to do. Then Bradbury grabs him again as Juju is coming out of his break and turning up field. And so there's only so much contact that's allowed, and it's happening right near the line of scrimmage and in front of the officials. So, okay, people are arguing that it's not a penalty. They're not arguing that it's not a penalty. They're arguing that it should have been called then. So when should defensive holding be called, if ever? Like, never on a pivotal third down? Never in the red zone? Not in the fourth quarter of a tight game? Like, when are, if we're going to have holding as a penalty, in the guy, we all know he held him. He held him. We're just saying, ah, that's kind of a, a, a ticky-tack call. But he fucking held him on the most important play of the game. What, what are the refs supposed to do? If the refs don't call it, then the Chiefs fans would be sitting up there saying, oh, that guy he got held. He was coming out of his break. And that's not for a guy fair. who doesn't like to talk about officiating. You're sure talking a lot yeah. about the officiating, sir. Sir, yeah, I'm sorry. But, well, you uh, guys made me. You guys made me. <laughs> anyway, Jeff, I know you. Maybe you feel different. You're, you know, I know that this is. You know, we really haven't given you enough uh, empathy here. I think you not now. You know what it's like. Stefan's not an Eagles fan. I'm not fan. an Eagles fan. fan. I just went to school in Philadelphia. I got. I have a soft spot for the Eagles and Philadelphia fans. Okay. But I grew up a Giants fan, Joel. Okay, that's right. Okay, I can't. Yeah, I can't keep up with like your Philly and New York. I, some reason I. But anyway, go ahead. That's fine. But yeah. I think. Are you disagreeing with me here or I, not? I don't disagree with you. I think the only issue here is that I think in the moment everyone wanted to say and think, 
Ugh, I can't believe they called that. It's terrible. The zebras are deciding the game. Because that's the that's the that's the emotion you want to have. You wanted to see a completely dramatic ending where the Eagles would have a chance and Jalen Hurts would get the ball one more time and do something amazing. Um, and we were denied that, so we were angry about being denied that. I think on reflection, especially after the game when Bradbury himself, the Eagles DB, said it was a holding. I tugged his jersey. I was hoping they would let it slide. At that point, you can't be mad at the refs. Maybe you can be mad at James Bradbury because the one thing that the Eagles couldn't let the Chiefs have was a free first down. Because if they gave them the free first down, the game was going to end the way it ended with the Chiefs controlling the clock, running it down to the end, and kicking what really was, Joel. I mean, there was very little chance that Harrison Bucker was going to miss a 27-yard field goal, even though he doinked a 42-yard attempt in the uh, at the beginning of the game. I look, mean, look, 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 look. I, I'm yeah. not saying it was bad. I'm saying it was disappointing. It was and, disappointing. I agree. And, That's what I'm saying. Like, we were is all it really? Just disappointed. Like, I don't, like, what was so disappointing? I don't know if the game ended... On a field goal with a few seconds left in the game, I don't understand. Yeah, like, what and did you the, all want? It's and a the most victory, the most exciting minutes of the game, the last two minutes when it was tied, just like dwindle off the clock with the Chiefs kneeling on kneeling on the ground. I mean, so you it had, a, been you had an entertaining game, and you needed every every minute, every second of it to be in doubt until the very end. Like that's exactly. I would, I would rather the last to be, be in I would doubt have to be until disappointed. the very end. <laughs> I would yeah. rather the last two minutes be exciting than the first two minutes. Um, the, hmm. Again, Why? I get back to the I get back to the perversion of this sport <laughs> that you that you love. It would have been better, so much better for the Eagles if James Bradbury had instead of playing defense on that play, just like sat on the ground yeah. and just let the guy score a touchdown, or if he had. Uh, I'm trying to think of other things he he could have done. Run into the stands and give Roger Goodell a high five. I don't know. Just like anything else but attempt to play defense would have been better for yeah. the Eagles. Yeah, fine. Maybe he could maybe he should have just let him go and say, you know, let <laughs> exactly. go and let God. You know what I'm saying? Maybe he maybe it's the incompletion. I don't Perverse. know. Yeah, right. Yeah. So maybe it's on the, the the Eagles defensive coordinator for not telling every one of the players to stop <laughs> playing. No, you can't. You obviously can't stop playing on that play. I'm being, I'm being facetious. But I, I, I should go into a little bit more detail about what Alex said, Kirshner, in his piece, which is that the the issue here is that football is perhaps the only sport. I'm quoting from him where penalized flag activity happens on a huge percentage, maybe even a majority of plays, and so it's not that you look at a you look at a replay of this play and you're like obviously that's a penalty you look at a replay of like every other play and you're like obviously that's a penalty and so it it leaves everyone from you know the, I, I guess the difference is that it wasn't just one fan base that was annoyed it was like neutral fans who were annoyed and I stand up for the neutral fan Joel I defend the neutral fan I guess yeah you know what. I would have liked for it to have not ended in that way if only some people wouldn't complain about it. If only only some people couldn't complain about it. I was like, all right, well, oh, that's why you didn't want to you didn't want to enjoy like excitement, I'm just, Joel. You, I'm just, I'm you didn't just, want to be so bothered. that everyone else wouldn't be upset. I left that game feeling totally good. I left that game feeling totally good about how the football season ended. I'm like, you know what? Competitive game, down to the wire, last second kick. 
I mean, what, I don't. I didn't need a Jalen Hurts uh, last minute drive for that game to to redeemed itself. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Thought, last second twenty seven yard kick versus last second sixty two yard kick. There's a difference. And a lot. See, and a lot of people aren't in on the joke that because the thing is, is like a, earlier in the week or in the previous week, like Arian Foster did this bit. Um, uh, I think it was one of the Barstool guys, which I don't watch, but I, I saw the clip online about how the NFL is scripted. And a lot of people d- didn't understand that that was a joke, that these games, you know, that, that Arian Foster was just playing along with the joke. And so I just think all this sort of stuff plays into the idea that there are some nefarious forces determining the outcomes of games and anything oh, other this was, than like this the was the best themselves. evidence for the NFL not being scripted that I've seen uh in ages, the NFL wouldn't want the game to end to end with that bullshit. Bullshit! I just I, it was holding. It was holding. <laughs> the guy held him. Disappointing. I mean, why it is that bullshit? It's deep. That's a defensive play. He be, he made a bad play. <laughs> Juju Smith Schuster got away from him, and he held him. And the the penalty was called as it was. Bullshit, bullshit has many definitions, and I think exactly. the one that Josh was alluding to is that it was just <laughs> yeah, a bunch of people taking knees and sliding to the ground. Thank you, Merriam-Webster. Yes. Not a big deal. Not a big deal. Go ahead. I think the thing I'm realizing, Joel, and I mean this completely seriously, is that mm. you love football so much that <laughs> your bar for a good game is lower than like yeah. the fan who's tuning in for the Super Bowl. Like You demand like a, a certain amount from a game that this game vastly exceeded. It was an amazing game, objectively yeah. amazing game. Jalen Hurts had one of the best um, games in Super Bowl history for a quarterback. The Eagles um, were brilliant in the first half. They kept Mahomes off the field. Like Mahomes was kind of dominant, but had less than 100 yards because he could never get on the, the field. The Chiefs didn't even have the ball for nine minutes in the first half. Amazing. They didn't even have the ball for nine minutes, which is unreal. That's yeah. well, partly because of a defensive touchdown by the Chiefs that gave Fair the point. Eagles the ball for like 16 True. straight minutes. Yeah. The Eagles are super fun to watch. I, lo- I actually love the Eagles quarterback sneak. It's like one of the great plays of uh, our lifetime. The fact well, that they've just Joel basically. Think that should be outlawed? It, oh yeah! If we're talking about bullshit, they've got it. They've got to. Figure, they've got. They, they've got to figure that play out. Like I, I get that the Eagles have figured out something on the lines that, like, they've got that offensive line. They've got a quarterback that squats over six hundred pounds, and they just figured out that they can just mash the shit out of you on that. But that. that Do you think scouting allowed, departments sorry. are like really looking into high school powerlifting at this point? Like that's the next, <laughs> yeah. the next big. Uh, Moneyball advantage and and sports. I'm, the vengeance of Dan Kendra. I don't know how many people remember Dan Kendra, but he was <laughs> I reputed for. You remember that? Yeah, he was reputed for like. Uh, I think didn't he pop his eye vessels doing a leg press, something like two thousand pounds. Anyway, no. Nope, what's go your Google what's Dan your Kendra. Dan Kendra blood vessel popping? Uh, Joel, um, sorry, <laughs> after ball reference. But yeah, and then you got to see in the second half, and and maybe we can talk about this more in the bonus segment. Patrick Mahomes do the things that get people like us talking about whether he is the greatest quarterback in the history of quarterbacking. Nobody he is, is. Uh, he is. Okay. All right. Well, yeah, I guess don't do the slate plus then. <laughs> Joel's Joel's killing our revenue. Stefan, I mean, what what stood out to you? Well, let's start with the fact that he was probably shot up with a gallon of Toradol and had a high ankle sprain and was clearly in pain. Not not just after he had his ankle grabbed uh, when he was tackled in the first half. Um, 
It's Stefan, before you go on, Mahomes said that he didn't get a shot, by the way, at halftime, yeah. which, I mean, whatever. Sure, go whatever, ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Then they <laughs> used a, a yard of tape on his ankle, whatever. Um, <laughs> um, he got something to dull the pain because, you know, I mean, I, I, we heard a lot of just will to win and there was nothing going to stop me, but NFL players rely on more than grit to get through these games, <laughs> as they should, because these games mm-hmm. are brutal. This is a controversial op- opinion, but don't you think Mahomes' injury actually made the game better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it injected a little more drama into Injected. It. Did you say inject? I, I did. Not intentionally, but I wish I had. I, I mean, those I, scrambles with his ankle, I mean, made the game better might not be accurate. Burnish his legacy is like yep. the most inarguable thing about that game. And seeing him try to overcome that was extremely dramatic yeah. and you know does it speak well of him that he did that i mean in a in a strict like playing on field sense yes like is it the kind of thing we want to be encouraging our children to do probably not but like you know it's it's like the rare kind of football injury that seems like morally neutral <laughs> To try to play, to try to play through it in a game like this, and he was amazing. He was amazing. I mean, and his numbers were terrible, but he was amazing because of the numbers the were things terrible. That ever, they weren't great. I mean, he didn't throw for two hundred yards. This was not like you know they scored thirty eight points. Know, man. He, he didn't that's throw because they didn't have yards. the ball. That's because they barely didn't have had the ball. ball and still managed to score 35, 38 points. And that's what I'm saying. It's that. It was all the other characteristics that make people say after five years in the league that he's the greatest quarterback of all time. Um, it's the creativity and the vision and the, the, the innovation, right? I mean, his ability to improvise is, is unparalleled. That You mentioned the scrambles. The main scramble was the 26-yard run on that last drive after he had re-injured the ankle you know, that was the best football play of the game for Patrick Mahomes. You know, he was, the pocket was collapsing against him, against a really good defensive line. He's not the fastest guy in the world to begin with, right? And he found a way to get upfield and keep that drive going and put them in, you know, in position to, for, for the end of that game. I mean, he was amazing. And that combined that with, and we should probably credit Eric Bieniemy and Andy Reid for finding flaws in Philadelphia's defense and exploiting them. The two touchdown passes that Mahomes threw to Kadarius Toney and Sky Moore, the same play, different sides of the field. They were all because they noticed a weakness and, and Mahomes and his, uh, and his coaches found a way to use it. They really made Philly look stupid on this place. And you know, Philly, I mean, its defense led the NFL in sacks this season. We're, supo- we're talking about a supposedly historically great defense that had four players with double-digit sacks. And as Orlando Brown, uh, Pat Mahomes' left tackle, said, put it on a fucking T-shirt, zero sacks. Um, so it wasn't just that Mahomes did it by himself. I mean, that that offensive line really held up their end of the bargain against the defense. And before, I don't want to, because we, we have a bonus segment, and we can talk a little bit about Patrick Mahomes here. The one thing I would like to say about this, the other side of this, is Jalen Hurts, um, because he was fantastic. And again, I, I said this in a previous episode, I was there when, when he suffered one of the biggest embarrassments that any football player can ever have. He's 19 years old, gets pulled Midway through a national championship game, his back, he's the reason his team is playing bad. His backup comes in and supersedes him and then beats him for the starting job the next spring and Jalen stays on there. So from that, 
Yeah, it's not just that he got benched, it's that the benching was, like, vindicated, and it was proved that he was the reason they were losing the game. Yeah, right. Like, I just thought that we we might, Jalen Hurts might pop up at another FBS school or something and do pretty well, but for him to have been here is just amazing. And, I, and, and I'd hope that Jalen's performance in some ways makes GMs and other NFL front office types stay up at night thinking of all the squandered black quarterback talent from the previous decades. And that's whether the QBs were asked to change positions or were buried on the depth chart or not chosen at all. Like somebody like Charlie Ward, who won the Heisman Trophy, and he didn't get drafted in part because he said, don't draft me if you're not going to draft me in the first round. So I just think of Jalen Hurts' emergence and the way that he thrived in the spotlight last night. Man, it just made me really proud. And I'm glad that, you know, that he seems like he's going to have just this great future in the NFL and, you know, His team did not win last night, but he didn't lose either. Coming up next, we'll talk about Kevin Durant and the fate of the super team in the NBA. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Less than 24 hours after the Brooklyn Nets sent Kyrie Irving to Dallas, Kevin Durant and his business partner reportedly requested a meeting last Monday with the Nets' front office. There wasn't much mystery about what they wanted. A trade, just like the one they asked for last summer. But this time Durant had a specific destination in mind, the Phoenix Suns. And now everyone in Brooklyn, from Durant to Nets owner Joe Sy, realized it was time to finally part ways and admit their super friends era was over. In the hours before the close of the NBA's trade deadline Thursday, the Nets sent Durant to Phoenix for three pretty decent role players, Mikhail Bridges, Cameron Johnson, and Jay Crowder, and four unprotected first-round draft picks. The move makes the Phoenix Suns one of the favorites in a wide-open Western Conference and turned the Nets from possibly the greatest basketball team of all time, according to the New York Times a year and a half ago, to a cautionary tale about the excesses of player empowerment and front office mismanagement. Stefan, before we talk about the Suns, I just want to know, how are you going to remember the KD and Kyrie era Nets? Oh, Joel, I'm going to gaze upon the triptych of my framed KD, Kyrie, and James Harden replica jerseys on the wall of my basement (laughs) rec room and wonder what could have been. No, I think this era in New Jersey, New York, Brooklyn Nets history will be seen as the apex of, as you mentioned, NBA player empowerment. Three megastars dictating roster creation, trades, and the hiring and firing of coaches. Billionaire ownership desperate for attention and instant success. And management forced to acquiesce to players and ownership and convince itself that it's all going to work out. Maybe these three dudes were just a colossally bad personality fit and not enough people saw it or were willing to say it because they were so good individually. Or maybe Insta teams don't really work that well. 
You could argue that the only time this has worked to its desired conclusion, and maybe I'm wrong here, was a decade ago with the Banana Boat Miami Heat. Every NBA champion since then arguably has not been a lab-manufactured super team. The Spurs in 2014, no. The Warriors in 15, 17, 18 were a core of drafted stars. KD was the one and possibly unnecessary competitively add-on. The 2016 Cavs were LeBron and Kyrie and a bunch of guys, but it wasn't Kyrie, Kyrie. The 2019 Raptors were fluky. The 2020 Lakers were LeBron, Anthony Davis and a bunch of guys. The 2021 Bucks were Giannis and a bunch of very good guys. And last year's Warriors were the drafted stars again with pieces minus KD. There are a lot more super team implosions than successes. The Warriors teams pre-KD are the only one on that list that actually had a group of homegrown stars and won a championship before a major acquisition of a major star. Whether you want to label that a super team or not, um, you're kind of eliding the fact that the Raptors traded for Kawhi, the Lakers traded for AD, the Bucks traded for Drew Holiday, and so on and so forth. You need an accumulation of stars to win an NBA championship. And the fact that the Warriors were able to get them all in the draft is historically anomalous. Um, there's also, uh, I would much rather talk about the Durant of this than the Kyrie of it, especially because you guys had a good conversation about Kyrie um, last week. But it just needs to be said that without the pandemic, this all could have worked um, or might have worked. Or without, you know, KD's latest injury, they had won like 20 of their last 22 games. I mean, this was not a mistake from a talent perspective. And in general, in sports, Joel, betting on talent is probably the bet that you should make all of the time, maybe just most of the time. And this is the example that makes it most, if not all. And Kyrie is just, um, you know, a guy that nobody should be in business with. Like, he is the issue here. It's not the concept of having good players all play together. No, but it's the concept of which good players, right, Joel? No, I think that's right. I mean, the the Nets had to do it, right? Like, I mean, I think that there's un, you can't really make an argument against them saying we've got to take these guys if they're available. Um, the problem and I should is say that, that Zach, was, Lowe, Zach Lowe in his most recent podcast said that he believes um, that the Nets never wanted Kyrie and that they had to have him yeah. to get Kevin Durant. Right. He was like the DeAndre Jordan. Uh, you know, to think of Kyrie Irving as like a guy that you don't want, who you have to take to get Kevin Durant and free agency is like kind of absurd, but like, you know, the, you, you, but isn't that you do what you have to do. that part of the point I was making, uh, Josh, that like you hand over your front office um, decision-making to one of the players and you get stuck with something that you don't want or probably need or is going to doom you. That's probably true. But I mean, the thing is, is that, Although you probably would not have wanted to give one of those max slots to Kyrie, you had no choice because you got to do whatever you can to get Kevin Durant. And the thing is, is that Kyrie was like uneven and a little erratic prior to going to Brooklyn. But like this other shit really just took off once he was there. Like, I don't think for as eclectic as he'd been prior to showing up in Brooklyn, there was nothing indicated that he indicating that he would thrust himself into the middle of a argument about anti-Semitism or like, we, I mean, none of us could have predicted COVID, right? I mean, just another his face. And then the other piece of that is that his departure from Cleveland was normal. It's just like, 
guy wants to have his own team. That's like the oldest right. Right. trick in the book. His departure from the Celtics anymore. was way less normal and like kind of but a red flag, but like, you know. Right. What are I you don't gonna... know. There was the flat earth stuff. There were some red flags yeah. there. He's a weird dude. And he is, but I, I think you think that like his talent outweighed any of those concerns prior to his stint in Brooklyn. And then once that happened, then it's like, well, man, you kind of get whatever you get. Like you deserve whatever happens as a result of that. We don't want to talk about the officiating, and then we talk about the officiating. We don't want to talk about Kyrie, then we talk about Kyrie. So we don't have Kyrie, you don't have Kevin Durant, you don't have James Harden. How is it that you trade, you lose all those guys, and all you've got is Ben Simmons? Like, I mean, that is a, I mean, that, what is, what an incredible failure. I mean, it's not, I mean, you can put blame everywhere, but like, the Nets front office traded Kevin Durant, who, if he's healthy, has a claim as the best player in the league. Maybe he's not. Maybe he's not better than Giannis anymore. But he has a claim. And you got back Mikhail Bridges and picks? Like, I just, that just seems like an incredible failure on the part of the Nets that I don't think they'll recover from anytime soon. Like, I feel like that's, they're, they're going to be down for quite a while. And, you know, they're going to have to watch Kevin Durant. But I guess the issue with me is, and you, you guys tell me, I, I don't also don't know why people believe that the Suns are such a prohibitive favorite. Well, they're not a prohibitive favorite, but they're one of the top contenders to to win the championship. And I'm like, you got Chris Paul, who's always injured. And I say that as a Rockets fan who knows better. Kevin Durant's injured right now. Devin Booker gets hurt all the time. DeAndre Ayton doesn't want to be there. What, what makes people think that it's going to be any different in Phoenix right now? Well, I think that the Suns, if they fail, will fail for like, normal, boring reasons of player health that you just outlined. And I think the Nets are actually not in particularly bad shape. They're betting on the downside of the Phoenix Suns, which is incredibly high. They they own all of the, the Suns' first-round picks for forever. And it's funny that they got Mikhail Bridges, who is like the literal opposite of Kyrie Irving as the guy who is the most reliable player in the NBA and was apparently extremely sad that he might have to miss a game because he hasn't missed a game since high school after he got traded, but then was very happy when he learned that it won't count as a missed game because he had not yet reported to the Nets. The Nets are like stocked with, um, you know, wing players, which is what everybody in the league wants. It was weird that they reportedly were offered between either three or four first round picks for Bridges after they acquired him. So they have players that teams want in addition to having a lot of draft picks. They could be, there are teams in the NBA that are in a much worse position than the Nets are. But yeah, I agree with you. I think the Suns are super fascinating um, for precisely the reasons you laid out. And Durant, if healthy and if paired with Devin Booker, um, is going to be a pretty indomitable offensive force um and they're gonna have to go through the nuggets and the grizzlies and probably the warriors <laughs> when they get back healthy it's gonna be a really interesting and the mavericks eh. the kings eh. uh, and <laughs> you know, note that i didn't list the pelicans who have their own ex- extraordinarily mm. frustrating injury issues but <laughs> you know stefan sons have a new owner matt ishbia who's a billionaire willing to pay the luxury tax excited to do this trade and is like second day in the office. Let's, uh, let's let it fly. But it's, um, you know, they're pursuing, I guess, the super team route here. And are you 
suggesting that maybe they shouldn't have done that? Are you, uh, what, you know, what, what do you think of, uh, you know, the, the Suns kind of going on all in with the, you know, there's only one championship to win with the likelihood that it's going to fail and they're going to have major problems on the, on the back end here. Because this is what owners do. And look, you have the opportunity to trade for Kevin Durant. You trade for fucking Kevin Durant. <laughs> what if I mean, they could have gotten him, but it would have had to take Kyrie Irving. You don't do that, apparently, according to you. Um, you probably don't based on the on what we've seen over the last year and a half, right? I mean, two years. Um, it would not make sense. I mean, what makes sense from the Suns, it seems to me, is that nobody in the West is loaded. Nobody is a prohibitive favorite right now. And if the, the Phoenix Suns with... Um, Chris Paul at age 30, what, seven, eight, and KD at age 33, 34, and not super healthy um, are going to have a chance to make a run for an NBA championship. It's going to be right now. So if you are going to be a new owner and excited to have the keys to the office and are willing to go tens of millions of dollars into luxury tax territory, sure, why not? I mean, this is the this is what NBA teams do. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm saying that the likelihood that it won't work is probably greater than the likelihood that it will, sometimes for just plain old boring basketball reasons, health reasons, like you said, Josh, but also maybe for, you know, the sort of compatibility reasons that just doom these kinds of partnerships more often than not. That's the thing that's underappreciated is that everything you do is unlikely to work because it's unlikely to win a championship. Everybody wants to win one. Right. And I mean, the Suns really didn't have a choice. I mean, what were they going to do? I mean, they're just going to, I mean, their championship window as presently constructed was pretty much over. I mean, Paul's 37. He can't be your second or third best player anymore at this point. And if you're going to take a swing, you might as well take a swing with a guy like Kevin Durant and see if you could get something out of it. And hey, if it doesn't work out, like you still have him for a couple more years, maybe you can put some pieces around him and him and Devin Booker and try to make it work. My my thing is, though, is that is one championship actually really worth it? And I, and I don't know because the Phoenix Suns have not won a championship. Um, I think probably they worth won it one if in you the 70s. No. Yeah, well, I was going to say, did they win one in the 70s or they lost to the Celtics? That's right, in the 70s. So they've never won a championship in franchise history. But my thing is, is like, you say that the Lakers won a championship and it doesn't seem like their fans are really happy. You know what I mean? Like, or the, the Raptors now. They won their championship. Well, the marginal like, value sure of, of a championship for Lakers fans is definitely lower than the marginal value <laughs> of a championship <laughs> for Suns fans. Fair point. I just feel like for people, there used to be like a window of time where you'd be like, I'm not going to complain. My team won a championship. And I feel like that window has like grown so much shorter in recent years that people get frustrated immediately with the fan. Like the Warriors fans, like they've had this great run, but they were still very frustrated when they were doing poorly a couple years ago. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, but I, I hope, I hope the championship is everything they, th- going for this championship is everything they think it's going to be because it just seems like fans get dissatisfied so much more easily and so much quicker now than they used to. The last thing that I will say is that I think we talked about the Redeem Team documentary, which was okay. I would not, mm-hmm. you know, rush to Netflix to watch it, but it was pretty good if you're into basketball. The much more interesting Dream Team documentary that will probably never be made is how the Dream Team concept and the Dream Teams in practice were the incubator for the Super Team mm-hmm. era. How mm-hmm. all these guys mm-hmm. playing together redeemed to use the the parlance that they <laughs> use the uh, the national team program won a bunch of gold medals but it also i think in a very real way changed 
the NBA. Like it incubated the Miami Heat, um, you know, configuration of LeBron, Bosch, and Wade. They came up with that idea of playing the national teams together. And apparently it incubated the Durant-Booker friendship and desire to play with each other. Was it worth it for America, Joel, to win all these gold medals and to destroy the NBA with the creation of the Super Demera? David Aldridge had a piece in The Athletic where he points out that what's changed, and this is a direct result of the Dream Team era, is that he writes the NBA has developed into a group of nomads. Um, it, we're used to this now. This is just the way of the league. Um, the, the, the propensity of players to use their power and their agency to move around is just what it is. And that's fine. And I think when, and it's great, and they should have that agency. Um, it is, it is accepted that your career is going to be more transient. It is normal. It is what basketball players grow up with, even in high school, um, on AAU teams and now in mm -hmm. college with the transfer portal. And it is good for sports. Um, but what happens when these pairings as the Brooklyn one show, is that when it fails, it looks really bad. And it looks like teams are so desperate, they'll do whatever the players want, and the pairings may not be valuable. Like, they may not work. And you're right, they don't always work because only one team wins the championship every year. But when it's as dramatic as what happened in Brooklyn, and we're leaving Harden out of this equation, too. I mean, the guy bolted because he didn't like Kyrie Irving. Um, it's just smart, magnified. Smart guy, and, like he has a lot of sense. Good, good judge of character. I should credit Ramona Shelburne and Brian Windhorst. Their ESPN piece noted what they described as the national team being fertile ground for super team incubation. In the next segment, we talk about the big game from this weekend. I'm talking about LSU, South Carolina. What are you talking about? Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. South Carolina women's basketball coach Don Staley, the pride of North Philly, stood on the sidelines of her team's game against LSU on Sunday in a throwback Randall Cunningham Eagles jersey. 
Given that, I'm thinking she wasn't totally satisfied with this weekend's major sporting events, but it must be some consolation that her undefeated Gamecocks blew out the no longer undefeated Tigers, 88-64, to in front of a sellout crowd in Columbia. This after South Carolina beat UConn, 81-77, in Connecticut the previous Sunday. Joining us now to discuss is our friend and frequent guest, Chantel Jennings of The Athletic. Hey, Chantel. Hey, thanks for having me. So South Carolina is the defending national champion, and they have looked like it this season. And especially on Sunday, they jumped out to an 18-2 lead. The game did get a bit tighter in the second and third quarters, but it was never really a contest. And you can actually make a reasonable argument that four different players were Carolina's MVP on Sunday. The bigs, Aaliyah Boston and Camila Cardoso, and guards Bria Beal and Zaya Cook. That is pretty scary for the rest of the country, no? Yeah. Um, There aren't very many women's basketball teams nationally that are bringing a 6-7 player off the bench or an Olympian off the bench, and South Carolina does both. So they're pretty stacked. And it's obviously no surprise that um, they're having success this year after bringing back most of their players from the national champions. Um, But what is different about this year's team and kind of what have we seen of them maybe more in the game where they were challenged a little bit against UConn to suggest that there's a different team, a better team. What, like, how has our opinion of them changed or evolved this year? I think everyone has upped their games just a little bit, um, which makes a difference when you are as good as South Carolina. Any sort of extra padding you can give is a good thing. Aaliyah Boston is sort of getting some hate from fans because they see her stats have gone down a bit and they think, oh, this must mean that she's worse. Um, But what they're not seeing is that when she is collecting those 13 points, 10 rebounds a game, she's doing it with three defenders on her versus one or two, which means that the players around her are getting um, better looks, more open shots. And then I think, you know, one big difference to me is Camila Cardoso this season. She was a transfer in from Syracuse. She was kind of taking, you know, she she seems a little timid at times. And I think you could still make that argument for her on the court. But she is having these moments in these bigger games against UConn, against LSU, where she's just looking more dominant. And I think when you have a high-low post game with Aaliyah Boston and Camila Cardoso, they're really, you know, the only team I can think of nationally that matches up with that would be Stanford, which has Lauren Betts, who's 6'7", and Cam Brink in the post. Like, there just aren't teams that can defend that high-low game. Um, Zaya Cook is playing better. And then you kind of get these wrinkles where Raven Johnson, who's a redshirt freshman point guard, and Kira Fletcher, who's a fifth or sixth year um, transfer into South Carolina, you know, their guard play is really complimentary and gives South Carolina different looks. And so I think Dawn just has so many weapons. Um, it's ridiculous to watch. So, Chantel, I mean, Obviously, South Carolina jumps out to our early lead, like 18-2. LSU fights its way back, to its credit. And the game was fairly, you know, tight, you know, within a couple of couple of baskets, a couple of possessions. And then somewhere around midway through the third quarter, South Carolina just seemed to overwhelm them and put it away. And I couldn't help but notice, because to your point about Aaliyah Boston, Angel Reese, 5 of 15, 4 rebounds. It just kind of seemed like, LSU got gassed that maybe they, they mm-hmm. trying to shoot over and, and get and find open space at the basket over Leah Boston was just a little too much for them in the moment, right? 
Yeah, and that's, again, where South Carolina's depth comes into play. You can literally run an Olympian as your third player off the bench. Like, your legs are constantly going to be fresh, and you're going against a team at LSU that basically has three scoring weapons, Angel Reese being the main one. And so if you can shut her down, it's not like they have these players, four, five, six, seven, that are going to go off for 20 points, whereas South Carolina does. And Don Staley had actually said, you know, Alexis Morris, their point guard, was having a really good game for them early on. She is arguably what kept it close. Um, not even arguably. She is what kept the game close for LSU. And Don Staley said at halftime, you know, we're going to just try to wear her out and hope that by the end of the third quarter, her legs are a little more tired. So Dawn was really smart to make a shift. She moved Kiara Fletcher into some full court pressure on her just to make every possession a little harder, make her work a little bit harder so that it sort of added up over time. And by the third and fourth quarter, Alexis wasn't quite as efficient as she had been in the first and the second quarters. LSU, Chantel, uh, was supposed to be rebuilding uh, Mulkey, Kim Mulkey came there, what, a couple of years ago now from Baylor, multiple national championships there, not without her, not without criticism for her personality and the way she has managed her athletes. It seems to be a love fest. Um, players are very supportive of her publicly right now at LSU, and she has taken advantage of the transfer portal to sort of create a new team. Um, uh, how good are they, though? One of the criticisms I've read is that their non-conference schedule has been incredibly soft, and maybe the 23 and 0 was a little bit of a of a of an overrating of how good they are and the kind of challenges that they're, they're going to face as we get closer to uh, the tournament. I mean, it's not a criticism; it's just a fact. They <laughs> had a soft schedule. Um, you know, they had played like two ranked teams coming into this game. I. I did not think this was going to be a close game. I had predicted this was going to be a 20-point game. And I had talked with a lot of other sports writers who were like, what? Are you kidding me? And I was like, when LSU proves it, then I'll believe it. You know, the proof is in the pudding. And LSU had two close games that they almost lost, one to Georgia, one to, I think, Texas A&M right before this game. Like, this was not a team, I think, when you see – teams that are, uh, you know, playing soft schedules and blowing everyone out by 30, then you say, okay, this is a team that gets its shit together and gets its business done. That's what South Carolina would do most of the time. But LSU hadn't done that. And you look at their team, and specifically with South Carolina, I think if you're going to beat South Carolina, you're not going to be able to go bucket for bucket with them in the paint. You're going to need to hit some three-pointers. And LSU is not a team that is you know, schematically set up to hit a lot of three-pointers. They hit, I think, less than six a game. And so, you know, if you're not sort of going three for two, which a team like I think UConn could do, they didn't necessarily in the game that was close against South Carolina. But, you know, this was not necessarily a great matchup for LSU, I think, person to person. I didn't think that Angel Reese, who was putting up great stats and everyone was saying, oh, if, if LSU wins, she should be the national player of the year. My thought was, you know, Prove it when you're playing against someone who has been the national player of the year, and then I'll take it a little more seriously. Harsh, tough, but fair. <laughs> I was going. I was going. I was going to say, Josh. I was like, yeah. How does that feel to hear that about your 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 school? It's. I'm cry, I'm crying. I'm crying right now. It's very, it made me feel really sad. Is what it made me feel. Um, Don Staley and Kim Mulkey have not had the warmest relationship um, after the game. Don Staley is very complimentary of Kim Mulkey and LSU, saying they're ahead of schedule and pointing out 
as I would point out, that they have the number one recruiting class coming in next year, and we will be uh, speaking the name Michaela Williams uh, very much over the next uh, three to four years, who is uh, an amazing, amazing talent who's going to be maybe pairing up with Angel Reese next year at LSU. But um, I, I think it is fair to contrast Don Staley and Kim Mulkey. I mean, the most obvious contrast is the way that they have publicly and not publicly supported Brittany Griner, um, Don Staley being one of the most outspoken advocates for Griner, keeping her name top of mind every day while she was incarcerated in Russia. While Kim Mulkey said maybe twice ever that she was like hoping that Brittany Griner would come home. There is, I believe she um, was praying. Yeah, praying. She, was she was praying. praying. She was doing a lot of praying. It's well documented, including in Brittany Griner's memoir, um, the dissolution of their relationship. Griner played for Mulkey at Baylor and has said that um, Mulkey tried to encourage her to keep her sexual orientation under wraps. And so Mulkey's gotten deserved criticism for that and for her lack of public support for Griner in comparison to a lot of people. And and yet, um, you know, Stefan alluded to it, Chantel. I find it so fascinating that players like Angel Reese, like Flaget Johnson for LSU, just incredibly charismatic and smart and interesting players and young women have been so vocal in their support of Kim Mulkey, not just saying I like her, but saying she's made me a better person and has encouraged me to be myself. Um, what have you made of of all of this? I mean, she's Kim Mulkey is obviously a fascinating character. Yeah, it's definitely confusing at times. And I don't know how much of it is sort of the separation between women's college basketball and the WNBA and how much, you know, it just sort of feels like, oh, this is a different world. It's not my backyard because in her backyard, like you watch Kim Mulkey on the sidelines, like she rides for these players. If, you know, if someone is going to get on Angel Reese or Flaugé Johnson or Alexis Morris, like Kim Mulkey will rip off a ref's head to defend her players on the court. Right. And I think as a basketball player, that is probably something that is seen as, you know, she's got my back, right? Like she'll, she'll literally like march to half court and try to fight a ref for me. Um, And I think, you know, Johnson is a player who is also a rapper and is a signed rapper. And she has said, you know, Kim really supports me in this. I was recruited a lot of places, but Kim believes in me as a basketball player and rapper. And so I think there's this element of these players sort of what they see in their reality, how they feel supported, how they felt welcomed, you know, Angel Reese through the transfer transfer portal saying, you know, she she didn't necessarily feel like she could be 100% herself at Maryland, but now she can. Flashy Johnson, same thing with LSU. And then sort of seeing this world that might feel further away from them, even though it shouldn't, where, you know, I don't know how much they understand about the dissolution of this relationship between a player like Brittany, who helped make Baylor what it was and helped make Kim what she is as a coach um, to who she is now. And, you know, I think there just sort of feels like this this weird break there. I, I can't explain it. Um, You know, we were talking about, uh, you know, Don and uh, Kim not having the warmest relationship. Well, there's also uh, <laughs> Don's relationship with Gino Ariema, uh, especially after last Sunday's game when, um, it, you know, in a rematch of the 2022 20, title game that South Carolina won, um, they won the rematch, um, 80, 81 to 77 at Connecticut. And I just 
want to know what you think about that, Chantel. Does that mean anything in terms of the hierarchy of women's college basketball? Or are we still just sort of waiting on the tournament and for UConn to get its full complement of players? Because it's worth noting that, you know, UConn is missing Paige Beckers. AZ Fudd is out. Um, and I think Caroline Ducharme, she's 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 out as well right now, too. So, I mean, they're missing like three really important players. But did that did that win by South Carolina mean anything to you in terms of like, where college women's basketball is, who the dominant program is now. Yeah. I mean, I think Carolina has been the dominant program. Um, you know, you look at that, the, the season that didn't have the tournament because of COVID South Carolina would have won that. I would, if I was, you know, betting because I wasn't a sports writer, I would have put money on them. They won the <laughs> national championship last year. They're four and zero against UConn in their last four meetings. Um, but as you said, UConn has had insane health issues this year. Like their all bench team would be probably like a group of final four starters for most schools with a half decent coach, right? Between Paige and AZ and Caroline and Dorka, who's missed some time. And, you know, they have two players total who've appeared in every game for UConn this season. This is definitely, you know, you, when you have a coach like Gino who just sort of picks up all Americans, like it's nothing, you don't necessarily ever feel bad for someone like that. But this is a, a year where you say, wow, he's actually done a, a good coaching job, sort of shuffling in all of these rotations. But what stands out to me about that game is that they did it in Hartford, Connecticut. And I think there were also some really interesting dynamics in terms of personnel in that game that stood out to me. Don Staley went with Raven Johnson at point guard, a redshirt freshman, first-year point guard. She put Kira Fletcher on the bench. Kira played like four minutes, who's this sixth-year player, transferred in from Georgia Tech as sort of the veteran leader. And afterwards, it came out that Kira basically said, like, Raven, you've got this. Like, Don put her trust in a freshman in Hartford, Connecticut, in front of tens of thousands of fans for UConn. Like, there were probably five people cheering for South Carolina in that building. Um, so I think that's the difference for me. And I sort of also look at the LSU South Carolina game this way. I don't know if it would be necessarily a 20 point difference in that game if there weren't 18,000 South Carolina fans screaming and making it hard for communication for LSU on that end. I think a neutral court might play a little bit more into the favor of LSU. Similarly, we know LSU I lost think, them by six at home last year with a worse team. So home court right. is a big deal. Home court's a big deal, and I think just when you have, especially with transfer portals, you have people playing together for the first time, communication, I mean, it's not early in the season, but communication is still really important, and a coach is talking to players who are playing for her for the first time, that matters. That 20-foot difference where you can't yell to your player to say, this is what we're doing, that matters. And so I think all of that sort of compiles together, but no, South Carolina is the best, coolest, most interesting team in the country right now by far. Well, they're the coolest, Stefan. I don't know what any what anybody can uh, <laughs> can do with that. So, what do you think of the tiff between Gino and Don after that game, where Gino said that one of his players, uh, Lou Lopez Seneschal, had bruises all over her body after the game, and Don Staley took a lot of offense to that? Yeah, a few things. Gino complaining about refs is nothing new. Like. <laughs> death taxes and Gino complaining about refs. Like, you can bet anything on it. In my mind, I think he was playing a bit of a long game. He was being pretty strategic here, knowing that there's a chance that they meet up again in March, and he wants to put that out into the NCAA officiating world. You know, this is what I think. This is what I feel. Watch out for, you know, tough defense. Um, and I think, you know, Don Staley kind of saw that and was like, nah, you're not going to do this. Like, what the heck? Um, 
And I think Don Staley, when we talk about, you know, Kim Mulkey is a good example earlier when we talk about coaches who like ride for their players, like players who play for Don love her on and off the court. Like I have not talked to players who don't enjoy Don's playing for her. I mean, obviously practices, you know, I think there's a difference between being hard on players and she has high expectations, but Don is going to back up her players. She's going to defend her players. And I think she didn't like the way specifically that came out because their defense is really good and it is really aggressive. And if you can't handle it, you can't handle it. To me, you know, you play up to what the refs will allow. Like starting in fifth grade in basketball, they tell you control what you can control. Don't complain about it. You can't control the refs. And the refs decided in that game they were going to let it be physical. So rather than complaining about it, why don't you just be physical, you know, rather than not and saying that there's all these bruises on Lou's body, which might be Do you be think true, Don but... Staley was cool with the holding call on James Bradbury? Yeah, I was going to say, that, I mean, people, I mean, <laughs> thanks, French Chantel. I'm so glad that people are, you know, God, stop, stop whining about calls. Just play the game, you know? <laughs> well, we can keep it to basketball, but I think uh, <laughs> in terms of Don and her thoughts on the officiating, I think Don's team specifically, it's interesting, actually, I was laughing after Chino said that because I did a story on Brie Beal, who I think is the best perimeter defender in the country. Mm-hmm. She's incredible. And Can I interrupt just was, to say they had this stat on ESPN that the players she's guarding score 3.6 points a game with 21% shooting. It's like the most <laughs> incredible statistic I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I think basically the defensive player of the year is between her and Aaliyah. And I would not, you know, argue with anyone who goes with Brie. I might go with Brie. But it was interesting talking to Don. I was asking her, why is why is Brie such a good player? Is it her hands? Like, is she quicker than everyone? Like, does she have x-ray vision? She can see something. And she said... Brie is so smart. She plays up to exactly what the refs will allow and what the rules will allow. And in that way, she, she said, literally, she's a cheat code like Diana Taurasi is a cheat code. Diana Taurasi in the WNBA knows exactly what the refs will allow her to do. And she does up to that. And I thought it was interesting because then Gino's sitting here saying, you know, they're being so physical. They're doing all of this. And Don is telling me that Brie, and I would argue her whole defense in a way that does play up to what the refs will allow them to do, is basically doing what Gino's favorite, best, most interesting player from UConn does in the WNBA. They're playing up to what the refs will allow, which that's good coaching. That's good, smart basketball. Do what the refs will allow you to do. And if they start calling it, stop, which I think South Carolina does a pretty good job of. You don't see Bree following out of many games. If they're going to start calling the way she body checks a little bit, which technically is that, you know, violating the law of or the principle of verticality, whatever the rule is in the refing rule book. Yeah, but the refs don't really call it. She doesn't hand check. Chantel Jennings writes about basketball for The Athletic. Thanks, as always, Chantel. If the refs call it, stop doing it. That's what I took from that uh, segment. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. 
Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. And now it is time for Afterball, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Um, Joel, what do you remember about Dan Kendra? We've got to, you know, follow through on the promise we made earlier in the show. I mean, I, he was, uh, I think, the best quarterback in his class in 96. Um, he was going to be amazing. I heard, you know, West Pennsylvania legend. And uh, then Eastern he got to college and moved sorry, him to fullback. We can't, we can't Eastern let, Pennsylvania. We, we oh, can't sorry. Let that pass. Glad you corrected the record. And he got moved to fullback in college. <laughs> That's what I remember about Dan Kendra. His Wikipedia page is, like, too short. I think somebody needs to go in. I'm going to assign this just to the world. Somebody needs to go in and <laughs> fill this out. This is, I'm going to read it in its entirety. Dan Kinder III, born March 15th, salute March 15th, is a former American football player, a highly touted Parade All-American 1995 National Offensive Player of the Year, high school player from the Eastern Pennsylvania Conference. Kinder picked Florida State over Penn State after two years behind Thad Busby. I've never heard of this person. I heard Thad Busby. I remember him. Oh, yeah. Kendra was scheduled to take over as the Seminole starting quarterback in 1998 before tearing the PCL in his right knee during spring practice, thus elevating Marcus Outsen to the number two quarterback spot for the entirety of the 1998 NCAA football season into Wikipedia entry. Come on, Joel. That's terrible. Yeah, I mean, I don't, we don't know what happened to him after 1998, huh? That's uh, 2000, I guess. He went undrafted, and that's all we know, right? Um, Here's a 2013 he, story from SB Nation, the yeah, legend of Dan Kendra. Right Joined the Navy as a reservist. He's now uh, living in uh, Pennsylvania, and it appears he, at, at least at this point, was selling medical devices. Um, are you on LexisNexis or something? Or what are you? <laughs> no, this is an F, F, uh, SB Nation long-form okay. story. Okay. And he did have ruptured blood vessels in his eyes. That is true. That's right. From, that's, he was trying to, he was trying to leg press two thousand pounds. I, I, I'm pretty certain that's how he did that, if I'm not mistaken. The so. machine was theoretically past its limit, but Van Hallinger managed to pile on more weight. This is it, Kendra, he said, pointing. That's thirteen hundred and thirty-five pounds. Okay. We can't fit mm. any more weight on. This is our last <laughs> shot. This is like a Star Trek. I don't really watch Star Trek, but it's like this. <laughs> we can't go. The 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 ship won't hold. Um, Kendra nodded. Okay, coach. He positioned himself under the weight, <laughs> took a deep breath, and with the weight sagging on the machine, powered up a single mighty rep. The room erupted in screams and cheers. Van Hollinger helped Kendra up. The kid had ruptured blood vessels in his eyes, and they were already devil red. His face, too, was red and getting redder by the second. His breathing was uneven. Coach Van, he said, I feel dizzy. And then he gets rushed <laughs> to the training room. Other than his red eyes, he seemed fine. Coach, he said, that was the best rep I ever had in my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to be on the Wikipedia page. Mark Weingartner, the legend of Dan Kendra, SP Nation long form, 2013. Joel, what are your Dan Kendra's ruptured blood vessels in his eyes? I'll come yes, up with uh, a more pithier way to put it in the show notes. Okay, we'll figure it out. Um, well, look, perhaps you, dear and faithful listeners, are familiar with the latest book banning controversy unfolding in Florida, a state I once lived in for four years. If you aren't familiar, here's the long and short of it. School officials in at least two counties, Manatee and Duval, ordered teachers last month to remove or wrap up their classroom libraries. The removals came in response to new guidance by the Florida Department of Education, which follows a ruling from the State Board of Education that a law restricting the books a district may possess applies to both school libraries 
and teachers' classrooms. A teacher who violates that law could face up to five years in prison. A Florida Department of Education spokesperson told the Washington Post that teachers found guilty could also risk penalties to their teacher certificate. The book ban has meant school libraries across the state have been unable to order new books. And in the public school libraries of Duval County, where Jacksonville is located, for instance, that means even Roberto Clemente, pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates, was one among more than one million titles removed from bookshelves. This sort of attack on public education is a fact of life under Governor Ron DeSantis, who has ramped up his offensive against classrooms and university campuses across the state. That includes limiting what schools and employers can teach about racism, banning the college board's advanced placement courses in African-American studies, and ending instruction about gender identity and sexual orientation, among several other totalitarian measures. All in all, a lot of bad shit is happening to the three million public school students in Florida more than 60% of them members of racial minority groups. So let me tell you the reason I bring this up, because as you know, Hang Up and Listen is a sports show that sometimes ventures into the political square. I, Joel Anderson, think that high school and college athletes and their parents and coaches should consider a boycott of Florida's colleges and universities, with the obvious exceptions of Florida A&M, Bethune-Cookman, Florida Memorial, and Edward Waters, all of them HBCUs. If the athletes of other racial groups want to join them, fantastic. If there are people who are members of other marginalized or vulnerable communities who believe that there are other political reasons to boycott Florida, great. If there are people who don't consider themselves members of those particular communities but want to be allies or even better, co-conspirators, amazing. Today, I'm making a direct request, though, to Black Floridians and other Black student athletes who are currently considering schools in Florida to reconsider. Now, look, I know hoping for sports-driven boycotts is largely a fool's errand. For more than a generation, there's been discussion of college basketball players staging a sit-in during the Final Four, and the games have continued to go on. In the fall of 2015, I was at the University of Missouri when the players threatened to set out a game against BYU as part of a campus-wide protest against racist incidents on campus. The school president resigned, but the game went on as planned a 20-16 win for Mizzou. In 2020, we even had on a couple of inspiring UCLA football players who were organizing athletes amid the darkest days of the pandemic. And man, they were so smart, so resolute, so impressive. And as we all know, they and their fellow players eventually fell into line and played an abbreviated season in spite of the risk. There are so many reasons why young athletes aren't likely to consider a work stoppage. And I understand that it's asking a lot of them to balance their ambitions as an athlete with the demands of activism. It's maybe not even fair to expect them to do the sort of work meant for politicians and lobbyists. But I can't think of anything that would speak most directly to the fundamental disrespect for the contributions of Black Americans currently unfolding in Florida under the DeSantis administration. And anyone who follows football knows that Florida is one of the nation's top producers of talent, ranked third among states and current NFL players. And we know that the vast majority of those players are Black. When I lived in Tampa, believe me when I tell you that I haven't lived anywhere that the players and coaches are so desperate to thrive at the game. And that includes living in Louisiana, Oklahoma, Georgia, California, and of course, Texas. The state's obsession with the game can't be found in palatial facilities or six-figure salaries for the high school coaches. No, it can be found in the intensity and desperation with which their black players play the game. The expectation in Florida then, and pretty much everywhere else, is that black people are going to dutifully suit up for the games and the schools, administrators, coaches, and fans are going to reap the benefits. But I'd love to see what might happen if there was a disruption in that process. This year, Florida, 
Florida State, and Miami each signed recruiting classes ranked among the top 20. That's not bad. Certainly better than the state deserves at the moment. But what if Black people in Florida used one of their most visible platforms, that of college football, to draw attention to DeSantis's overreach in public schools? What if enough athletes, a hand of full of the blue chippers, just decided to go to Georgia or Oklahoma or Tennessee and pin the blame on DeSantis in the Stop Woke Act? What if Mario Cristobal or Billy Napier had to explain to their fans that they couldn't reel in a better recruiting class because they're laboring against the national perception that the state is hostile to black students? And we know that that perception matters, especially to college football coaches working in the southern United States. Let's go back to 2007 at the University of South Carolina, where head football coach Steve Spurrier spoke out against the Confederate flag flying atop the state capitol. If anybody ever asked me, my opinion is we don't need the Confederate flag. It was embarrassing last year when Corso, Fowler, and Herb Street were doing the game day, and some dude was waving that Confederate flag behind the TV screen. It's, it's just embarrassing to me, uh, to our team, our school, our state. That's my opinion. Years later, in 2015, weeks after Dylan Roof fatally shot nine members of a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, then-Governor Nikki Haley signed a bill calling for permanent removal of the Confederate battle flag from state capitol grounds. Spurrier said, Obviously, all of us in college sports, we know the importance of equality, race relations, everyone getting along. I know the coaches all over South Carolina were happy and glad to see the flag come down. A year later at the University of Mississippi, the school announced that Dixie would no longer serve as the school's fight song, part of a decades-long campaign to distance itself from Confederate iconography. And in 2020, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd, players and coaches all over Mississippi directly campaigned at the state capitol for legislators to remove a Confederate emblem from the state flag. Mississippi State running back Kylan Hill increased the pressure, tweeting that he was no longer willing to represent any Mississippi institutions on the field if the flag wasn't taken down. A number of his teammates supported him, as did his head coach, Mike Leach. In June of that year, the state legislature voted to remove the flag. One Democratic legislator suggested naming the flag change legislation after Hill. Scott said, the voice of this young man was a tremendous voice. So this is my challenge to the black football players, parents, and coaches of Florida. Who's going to let DeSantis and his supporters know that there will be some consequences for taking black history, Roberto fucking Clemente, for example, out of the schools? Maybe it's not the same as voting him out of office or holding Republicans accountable for their embrace of the far right's worst instincts. But it's something when it seems like much of nothing has made DeSantis's administration more restrained in their ongoing power grab. It would be so satisfying to see DeSantis and Florida's legislatures who don't want books about black people in the state's classrooms or as part of the curriculum say, well, maybe the black students don't belong on your football fields either. I know what I'm asking for is unlikely, but I can't stop fantasizing about it. Being a sports fan, of course, is hoping against hope for a win for your team. There's a big game happening in Florida right now, and black folks can't afford to lose it. Joel, that was great. And there was, uh, I think, an analogous thing happened after Roe v. Wade got overturned. There was a lot of speculation about how it would affect recruiting and women's sports. Chrissy Parham, who we had on the show, um, who had an abortion, talked about it publicly while she was in college at the University of Arizona in 1990, she said that if um, Roe v. Wade hadn't been the law of the land at the time she was in college, she would have had to seriously consider going to, uh, you know, 
a, a school where she knew that her uh, reproductive rights were supported. Um, I haven't seen, I don't know if you either of you guys have seen much follow-up reporting in the year since about um, what the effect has been, um, but it's definitely something that um, has been on a lot of people's minds for a lot of reasons in this era now where college athletes do have more autonomy. And um, so I, I think uh, we'll keep coming up as an, as an issue. Yeah, no, man. I mean, I hope, I mean, you know, that's the other piece of it. I, I, I would, I'd hope that, you know, people would take up the mantle of activism then. Um, there's still time. People can still do these things. These are still pressing political issues all over the country. Um, and, you know, athletes and their parents, you know, they can make decisions about where they want. I mean, these, these are also just practical decisions about where do you want to spend four or five years in school? Yeah. Well, just this past week, Alex Morgan, the great soccer player for the United States, said that transgender kids should be allowed to play youth sports. And she did single out Florida and Texas and uh, legislative action to deny kids from playing. Morgan said, playing in Florida and Texas, that's something that the team definitely needs to look at. The inclusion of trans kids in sports is the inclusion of kids in sports. Everyone should have the ability to play sport. And she went on to talk about why the U.S. women's national soccer team players are going to continue to talk out about it. So, it's there, and it's in other sports and in other issues too, Joel. And you're absolutely right to have other people come out. And maybe it's pro athletes coming out, Joel. Maybe it's head coaches at colleges coming yeah. out. Maybe it's guys that played at Miami and Florida and Florida State speaking out. You're right. To see some sort of collective action would be terrific. Deion Sanders, very vocal. I mean, like, there's a lot of guys that, you know, kind of, be, you know, that they're beyond the, the, the reach of their administration. Wouldn't He's from Florida. Wouldn't hurt to say something about it. Just saying. That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hold up. 